everybody thinks you're a nut when you try to do something new until it works and then you're a genius. I think neither are true. As an entrepreneur, it's in your blood. You have to try to remake things. You have to try to rebuild things. You have to try to do things differently than the other guys did it. And it's just the way you're made up is you're looking for these different ways. Um, so you just kind of have to get used to people not seeing what you see. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's episode features J.B. Bernstein, the inspiration behind Disney's biographical film, Million Dollar Arm. We're excited to have J.B. in the studio with us just before he delivers his keynote address to the students at the University of Tampa. I hope you really enjoy this episode. Well, I'm real excited today to invite J.B. Bernstein to our uh, podcast. This podcast is designed to inspire entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs. And I can't think of anybody better to have here today on the university campus than, than you, J.B. Thank you for coming. Uh, that's a big honor. I consider myself an entrepreneur, so to think about myself as, as some kind of a model or, or example for entrepreneurs is a huge compliment. So thank you. Well, I'm not sure I'm quite there yet, but thank you. Oh, you're definitely there. So, so you've well established yourself well in the sports management field, and uh, you've done some other exciting entrepreneurial things I think we'll talk about today. But a lot of us know you from a movie called The Million Dollar Arm. So it might be fun to start there. Sure. That's a movie of resilience and uh, a great story for entrepreneurs. Can you tell us a little bit about how the whole Million Dollar Arm project got started? What was the impetus for that? Sure. So uh, Million Dollar Arm, is, is, is so the first thing I'll tell to aspiring entrepreneurs is be very careful because... You never know what you're going to be known for in your career. I, I, I've accomplished, I think, a lot of great things, but I will always be the guy that John Hamm played in Million Dollar Arms. So a lesson to learn. If you ever get a movie deal, just know that that is who you are going to be forever. So it started, I was a sports agent, and I had been recruiting guys forever. And I represent a lot of the top running backs, you know, Emmett Smith, Barry Sanders, Curtis Martin, you know, Marcus Allen. And, and so if you want to be a running back, I'm usually the guy that people are going to go with. And there was a big running back coming out and out of college, and he wanted to sign with me and I'm meeting with him. And at the, at the end, the long but short of it is the guy wants a million dollars, like a bribe, like a million dollars cash in a bag. And so I was so frustrated and fed up because I realized it wasn't this guy. It's one of my competitors had offered him this money. And I said, this is where this business is going. I, I don't really want to be in it. And so I started to think, what can I do? Where can I go? You know, and I started to think about Yao Ming. And I said, oh, boy, it'd be great to have a Yao Ming. And, and India started to get in my mind. And, and bottom line, I, I evolved this idea of going to India to try to find baseball pitchers with a million-dollar arm contest, kind of like American Idol. Right. And that's basically how it evolved. Everybody thought I was a moron until it worked, which is another great lesson for entrepreneurs. I, I think I, I saw one of your quotes, the greatest pleasures in life is doing things people say you can't do. So I'm guessing there were a lot of people that said you couldn't do that. Right? The, the, that Never may be that. the most appropriate quote for Million Dollar Arm was yeah. uh, most people thought I, I was a dope. And then it worked and we got these kids signed. And all of a sudden, it's funny, you know, to hear a woman like Diane Sawyer talking about this and saying, boy, what a great idea. I don't know why somebody hadn't thought of this before. And I'm laughing, thinking her parent company, ESPN, told me nine months ago that I was crazy. Don't do and that. now they want to know why it hadn't happened sooner. So that's kind of the nature of success is that 
everybody thinks you're a nut when you try to do something new until it works, and then you're a genius. I think neither are true. As an entrepreneur, it's in your blood. You have to try to remake things. You have to try to rebuild things. You have to try to do things differently than the other guys did it. And just the way you're made up is you're looking for these different ways. So you just kind of have to get used to people not seeing what you see. Right. You know, there's so many questions I have around that whole area, but but focusing in on that people not seeing things, there must have been times when you doubted as well and when you felt like a failure and you felt like uh, this was not going to work. And, you know, one of the one of the things we talk about in class a lot with my students is failure. And, and I even had an experience with a student who left class and didn't come back, actually dropped out because we were having this conversation about how failure is all part of the, the progression towards success. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about resilience and where does that come from? Is that something that you get an injection for and you found the right place for that? Or, you know, how did that happen for you? So so I talk about this later in my speech, but we'll we'll talk about it here now too is maybe it was my dating life that had set me up for hearing the word no a lot. (laughs) I But but I I hear the word no a lot and I, I, I I don't hear what most people hear when they hear the word no. Most people take that as a real good gut punch. I look at it like, this is the beginning of a negotiation. Because if someone listens to your proposal, they're in the market. I mean, think about it. If I call you up and try to sell you a male hygiene product, you're hanging up. You're not going to listen to my pitch. It's not for you. But when someone listens to your pitch and they're not related to you, they're interested. They're in the market. You just didn't sell them yet. And no means you just have more work to do. But it's the beginning, not the end. And so I, I, I always am excited about a no because that, that's one step away from a yes I look at. I'm, right. uh, to me, right. no isn't it's over. No is like, okay, now we're moving. He heard what I said. He's interested. So I've always been kind of weird that way. I think when you talk about resiliency, though, and you talk about failure specifically, I think the most important thing for people to remember about failure is that failure and success are mutually exclusive of regret. Regret is tied to preparation and execution. So let me explain that real quick because I want entrepreneurs yeah, really entrepreneurs yeah. really need to understand this. So you're going to succeed, you're going to fail. The, just by being an entrepreneur, there's no way you won't fail. You're going to fail at stuff. You're going to have ideas you thought would have worked. There will be market, things outside your control. You're going to fail. But if you've done everything you could up to that moment, you've prepared the best you could prepare, mm-hmm. and you've executed to the best of your ability, when you look in the mirror the next day, where's the regret? Nowhere. Not because there. you couldn't have done anything different. Regret is tied to preparation and execution because we're all lazy, because we all cut corners, because we all take the shortcut, because we all take an easy way out. And when you have to pay for the price of taking that easy way out, that's where regret comes in. But Makes I, a lot of sense. I've never regretted any of my failures because I did my best. I failed. And I'm assuming you learned from them and Absolutely. you used them to your benefit. There's no, well, that's the other thing is you, you kind of made this point coming into this question, which is failure is part of the process of succeeding. There's no way to succeed at anything without failing, at least in some part along the way. There's no path to success that doesn't include failure. So you're right about that. But the most important thing to understand about failure is if you're doing your job, if you're preparing great, and if you're executing great, and you still fail, you can live with that. It's when you wake up the next day and you realize, like, I did not 
prepare for that the way I should have. I should have been more prepared for that. I should have known that was coming. That's when failure hurts right. because you didn't have to fail. You did fail. You killed that idea. Sometimes an idea will just die on its own. Sometimes right. an idea will just die. And sometimes it needs to, yes, right? Absolutely. Not all ideas are, are worth If you are going to come up with ideas, on. the first thing you need to buy is a big garbage can. Because that's where most of your ideas end up. That's a great idea. You know, just have. Want to hear about my biggest failure? Yes, I do. Okay, I love talking about this. I was grew up in the sports business, so I'm sitting at a ballpark one day, and the thought just comes to me. And then you know, you may not know this, but men have urinals, the the things, and and in stadiums, it's just kind of like a big thing with these blocks in them. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if the opposing team's logos were on those blocks? (laughs) So the Orioles come into town, and, and I said, "I said, oh my God!" I was like, "I could, I could make this business in two seconds," and I thought it'd be great. And I'm thinking, "Oh my God!" And and the guys who make the, those blocks, you know, instead of using one a season, now they're going through fifty. I've just quadrupled their sales. Right, every game, this is like a win-win all across the board. Yeah. So this is going to be huge. And so I make the samples up. I've spent about like twenty grand. I make the samples up. I talk to the manufacturers. I've got it all set up. I go into baseball to show them. And I show up and I'm so proud. I think like, this is the greatest thing. This is a home run, home run. <laughs> and my old friend, this guy who I've worked with forever at Major League Baseball, had a licensing, looks across from me and goes, let me get this straight. He goes, you want to take people's money to pee on our logos? And I said, well, that wasn't going to be my marketing slogan. <laughs> and when you say it like that, wow, this doesn't sound like such a great <laughs> idea anymore. <laughs> And so um, the power of kind of having worked that one in a vacuum. Right. And literally the first person I exposed it to was the guy at Major League Baseball. If I had just even called him up. What a great lesson, though. You know, our students sometimes come in and they're like, I can't tell anybody my idea because they're going to steal it. And and I, we always, what would you say to them? I mean, we, we tell them you got to share it to shape it. I, I think that. Everybody thinks they have the next Google. Everybody right. thinks the reality is even the guy who had the next Google needed help. Right, exactly. You, you absolutely as an entrepreneur have to be willing to take the risk of sharing your ideas. You can protect yourself the best you can. great thing about social networking now is, you know, you can literally lay your claim in the ground and post it on your network and there it is for everybody to see. And no one can argue that you came up with the idea at that time because it's timestamped, it's on Facebook, it's public record, it's the same thing like FedExing yourself, your business plan or some of these things that these guys do. But in essence, that happens in business. You're going to, people will take ideas, they will copy, they will steal. But unfortunately, you can't get anywhere without help. So it's, it's the inherent risk in entrepreneurship. And based on what you said, it sounds like your philosophy is that if you've got a great idea, there's a sense of urgency and it's all about figuring out how to execute on it more so than, you know, taking your idea and holding it until it's perfect. Because you thought you had the perfect idea and when <laughs> when you displayed it, put it on display, it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work is a very fair, uh, a nice euphemism. It for, stunk. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 words used, the words used in that room were amongst friends and not comfortable. Right. So, yeah, you're right about that. And, and, and I think that if I were talking to entrepreneurs, the thing, the thing I would say most is nine times out of ten, when you tell people your idea, one of two things is going to happen. It's either going to die or get better. That the rare chance of someone stealing the idea, again, it, it's not worth the hassle because you're going to sue them, and then right. they're going to end up in a big tussle over. It. And, and and there's no point in that. When if 
someone's really looking at an entrepreneur and they think they could steal your idea, it's just as easy to say, hey, you know what? I can help you. I see what parts you're missing. Let's right. do this together right. and get a chunk of it for real. Right. And that's what I find happens most often is that people who would normally steal your ideas are much more interested in trying to get part of the action and help you. And Especially bring if you're passionate about it, you're going to work hard. Why wouldn't they want to let you do a lot of that work and then benefit from your hard work and be a part of that? Of course. But it also takes being having a mindset around the fact that it does take a team. It's not a solitary effort. And and so sharing the rewards of that is also a part of it, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, every venture you enter into, you, you're going to make a financial impact, positive or negative. You know, you're going to make or lose money. When you pull a team together, you're always going to increase your chance of success, you know, by spreading the risk, by adding more skill sets, by adding more opinions, by adding more viewpoints. It's exceedingly rare that multiple viewpoints make marketing products, sales worse. So I think a lot of times entrepreneurs can get so inside themselves. And what happens is sometimes you get too close to the idea, like the P-plocks. Yeah. And you just unfortunately lose sense of the market. You lose any other kind of opinion or thought other than this myopic focus of your great idea. You fall in and, love with it. Yeah. And... You know, that's the biggest mistake you can make as an entrepreneur is because there's no, the only idea you can fall in love with is the one that worked. Right. Exactly. And you got to put it out there. Mm -hmm. So what, what we've been talking about, we call an entrepreneurial mindset. A way, it's a really different way of looking at the world. Like everybody out there isn't walking around thinking like a J.B. Bernstein. Thank God so. for that. <laughs> but, but think about you, how much harder I would have to work. <laughs> that's right. But you see opportunities. You don't let obstacles get in the way. Where did this come from? Do you, where do you credit this mindset? Does it go back to an experience you had or has it built up over time? Because one of our goals is to help students think about what's that path going to look like for them? This is a great question. I, you know, I, I think about this a lot. I, I kind of, Especially now, you know, you get to 50 and you start thinking about your life and you start thinking about, you know, how things, how you got to where you are. And I remember even as a very young kid, I always needed to know how things worked. I didn't, I didn't, if I saw a compass, I, I wanted to know how the needle moved. I just, I needed to know that. Curiosity. Yeah. And I think over time, as I got older, that need to want to understand the things around me became markets and business and companies and products and how they make money and it just became very interesting to me. What I've developed over time, I think, is a system for coming up with these ideas and a lot of it is how I think about things and how I use my time. I tell young kids all the time, if you want to come up with ideas, you can't come home at five o'clock from class, order dominoes and put on a headset and play Call of Duty with a kid from Finland for 10 hours until you fall asleep. You're not going to come up with any ideas. Mm -hmm. In those hours, you know, I read foreign business journals and look and see what they're doing in other leagues, other teams, other brands. What's Downey doing in Europe that they're not doing in the United States, vice versa. So there's a massive amount of research you can do just what other countries and other people are doing. And then you kind of look at what people are doing wrong and how you can fix it. And all of a sudden you start spending all your time finding and looking for ideas. And then strangely enough, they start coming to you because you have all of these 
seemingly unrelated pieces of information flowing around your head. Like Million Dollar Arm is a perfect example of this, right? So everybody thought I was crazy, but realistically, these are the thoughts floating around in my head. Yao Ming is the greatest success in the history of sports, over $2 billion, and it's because he came from a country with a billion people where they had the inroads to be able to monetize sports. India is the only other country like that. Baseball is pretty close to cricket. 300 million men under the age of 29 playing no sports, no college athletics, nobody. You tell me somebody of those 300 million men is not born with a natural yeah. ability. Mm-hmm. So I say, how do you find them? American Idol, you know, all these things are flo- seemingly unrelated facts floating around my head. And then boom, you have that eureka moment. Why when I was watching that cricket match of, of Pakistan against India, I'm watching that match, billion people watching that match. I'm the only one who thought a million dollar arm. Because I had all those unrelated facts. If any of those facts are in your head, when you see what I see, you don't have the eureka moment right. because you're missing some of the parts. And so that's really what I, I have discovered is that the more information I can jam in my brain, the more eureka moments I have. You probably notice I can't. I can hardly sit still listening to you talk because I love that. <laughs> We so. teach in, in my creativity, creative problem solving class, we teach that model a little differently, but you've just put a story to what we talk about. So you validated some of the things that we do because yeah, we tell them that they have, you know, it starts with gathering what we call raw material and there's specific material to a problem and there's general material and it takes all of the above. And when you put it in your brain and you let your brain chew on it and you know, we give them this process, then the Eureka moment occurs. And unfortunately, a lot of people think some people are just lucky. They just have a lot of Eureka moments, but there's a lot of pre-work that went into that. The funny thing is, I used to think that. I didn't realize I had a system. So when I wrote Million Dollar Arm, my editor said to me, he said, he goes, you know, how do you come up with all these ideas? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, because we must have a system or something for coming up. He's like, you know, if you come up with one idea, maybe you can be lucky. He's like, but Upper Deck, the stuff you did at Procter & Gamble, Million Dollar Arm, the stuff you did with Bonds, the stuff you did with Sanders, the stuff you did with all the uh, Major League Soccer, all, the, all these things. He's like, every single one of these things works. He's like, well, you know, how do you come up with these ideas? And I never really thought, so I spent like six months really thinking about what, what the system was, and I, I did have a system. I just didn't realize that I did. I mean, as you mapped it out, it's exactly that. It's, it's putting the facts in your head. It's having a good, you know, I'm lucky in that my brain is unique in that I, I have an eidetic memory. So think of my brain like a Rolodex file. So I, I literally can pull up cards. Yeah, so, so I can coordinate things. A lot of people I teach this method too like to use notebooks. Uh-huh. Thought notebooks. Right, right down. Yeah, they I tell fa- them. They have fact, fact notebooks. So they usually keep three notebooks, demographics, facts, and ideas. And then they'll, you yeah. know, and they keep them that way. They can look through and say, I'm looking for a good idea for this. And yeah. But I have the facts and I know the demo. I just say, I know I saw a good idea. So, so they, they do it manually. But uh, And then it's that eureka moment. But it will happen if you can keep the material and catalog it and access it. You will have more eureka moments, 100%. That's, that's so exciting. Because again, so many people think it's magic. And if we can develop that process, we can learn to be, you know, Great entrepreneurs that come up with great ideas. Well, the reason why I won't write this book is because I don't want the competition. <laughs> Sad to hear you're teaching this now. Now I'm going to have to start working hard again. Didn't but we got a role model. Oh, so yeah, but okay. the other piece that we have to add to it is the execution piece. So I read somewhere that you sleep like two or three hours a night. Is that true? A little less, a little less. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Wow, a little less. So how do you, how do you, so you must have incredible energy and you must, and I can just tell from talking to you that you love working. I mean, I, I mean, you probably have a lot of other things in your life as well. I know you've got, you've got a family, but you, you, you really put a lot of effort into your ideas. So there's a big execution and preparation piece you talked about. So everybody in business school teaches the four P's and they're super important because it's the execution of marketing. Right. But it's amazing because they don't talk about any of this in business school, which is, so I, I've invented what I call the fifth P, and it sits over the other four, and it's okay. called perspective. Okay. Perspective is the guy who looks out into the world and says, this is wrong, I, this is inefficient, I can fix this, I can do better. And then it flows to the four Ps. So you identify the problem and how you're going to solve it, and then what's the product, what's the packaging, what's the pricing, what's the promotion. It's very executional. There are people who are great at that. And it's a super skill to have because you need to be executional. There are people who are really good at ideas and obviously need that. It's exceedingly rare to find someone who can do both. And I've been, I've been very lucky to be proficient at both. But it's funny how I discount the four Ps so heavily because I feel like you know anybody could do it. But it's not true because you do have to be really creative and smart in yes. marketing. Yep. And you have to take my idea and make a real product. That's producer. So, so there, there, there are real steps there, but I do separate. So the information upload, the cataloging, and the eureka moment would all be fifth P steps, and then everything else is the four P's. Isn't it fun to get to our age where you can actually look back and say, what did I do, and how did it work, and here's a process, and then you can share it with other people. Yeah. I think you love to mentor and talk to students and... And you shared some of that. So it, it, this is great. I love this. This is, well, I'm, this is I'm, a excited, I'm, a, I'm always excited to come to campus. I always feel, and, and we talked about this walking over here, was you know when we were in school, uh, opportunities for businessmen to come to campus and have real conversation with students was almost non-existent. Even in bigger schools, you went to small schools, but even in my school, it wasn't like, you know, I think the biggest guy that ever showed up at our campus was Stephen Wright for a comedy tour. Mm -hmm. you know, or that, but nobody ever showed up to actually speak to us mm -hmm. and, and give us lectures, especially entrepreneurial type stuff right. like this. So uh, yes, I do love it. I think it's an obligation of people like me who've, who've had success and can go out and inspire a new generation of people who, who you know, will forge new directions. Look, I haven't done anything great socially. I haven't cured any cancer or creating drugs, but in the world of sports, I've been able to move the needle to the next step of where things are going to go. I'm doing that now in drones. And I was so, just going to yeah. say, you're being modest to just talk about sports because I understand now you're the CEO of Avasite, yeah. which is like you inspect big offsite oil so this wells is a great, and So this industry. is a great business lesson, okay? Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, I originally got into this company, invested in this company because I thought we could replace cable cam with drones for sports. It was a sports play. Wow. Yeah. And much like my P-block idea, I probably should have called the commissioner before I got so deep. <laughs> in. So I get really deep into this thing and I go and sit down with the commissioner and he said, look, we'd love to work with you, but there's no way. He said, we're not. And this was 2011, 2012. It was even tougher. We're not letting drones anywhere in the stadium. Sorry. So now I'm stuck with this drone company. What am I going to do? As it turns out, if I got all the cable cam business, if I converted all, it's probably a $100 million business. Not bad. Then I found out a company like Berkshire Hathaway Energy spends like $300 million a year on helicopters that we could replace. And that's just one company. Perfect. So I realized this is a trillion-dollar industry in industrial inspection. There's your research again, So right? we shift the entire company. 
to industrial inspection, and now we do power, gas, and oil line inspections in, in 20 different states. And we're, you know, uh, working for Shell, BP, Mobile, uh, EOG. You know, all and how places. do you find time to be the CEO of that? <laughs> With well, all the other things, that's why you don't sleep. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, time, I've been lucky in that one respect, is time has never been an issue like it is for most people. So I, I, you know, I caution everybody who looks at what I've done and, 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 and you know, I, I owe a lot of it to the fact that I have short sleeper syndrome and I have a very rare form of it. Is that right? Yeah, so most people, about 2% of the population uh, have short sleeper syndrome and 98% of those people are walking zombies. They're insomniacs. They feel the effects of not sleeping. And then there's a very small percent of the population like me that sleeps an hour a night and has no ill effects. So I can work 23 hours a day and have been doing that pretty much since I turned 19. Wow. Yeah, I don't take weekends. I don't take vacations. I don't take any of that stuff. So I did right up until the time I got married. So right from 19 till about 44, I never had a day off. I never got sick. I never took a vacation. I just worked 23 hours a day every day. And now that so there's somebody I, else in your life, though, I'm, I'm I guessing do, I, you do that. I still stay up, but luckily a lot of that time spent with my daughter and my wife. I definitely try to spend time with my friends, try to get a, a better social balance. But I'm, I'm still working, you know, 14, 18 hours a day. So I got to cover the sports business. I got to cover the, the drone business. Um, there are some other businesses that I'm involved in as well. So, but... Good thing for me is I, I was born for business. I you mean, did. a lot of people love to do other things. I really love business. You know, one of the things uh, we talk about in class, too, is to build on your strengths rather than trying to overcome your weakness weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you've really adopted that in your life. You've, you've been able to sort of figure out who you are and what you do well and put that to work and... I've been very lucky in a lot of regards. My dad was a, a really successful business executive in the toy industry. And so I, I was able to be kind of exposed to business at a very young age. My grandfather was a fairly successful guy. And so, you know, at a very young age from both of those guys, I was, I was able to learn all kinds of really important lessons about business and, and, and create a relationship with business that a lot of young kids don't get. I mean, I was working at a very young age, working for my, the relationship between money and work was very strongly ingrained in me at a very young age. And, you know, what kid doesn't like money? Right, And right. Uh, as an adult, I've grown to like it more. <laughs> it can do a lot of nice things. <laughs> it's, not, it's not perfect, but it's super helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, and it can allow you to make a difference in a lot of different ways it does. as well. So, you know, we're, again, we're so thrilled to have you here today. I, I guess I'd like to kind of conclude by asking you if you had, if there was, if you could be talking to the J.B. Bernstein of, you know, 18 to 21, what piece of advice would you like to give him? What would you, what do you wish that you might have known at that age that we can share with our listeners? You, you know, I, I think that the best piece of advice is probably the, the one that I had to learn on my own about failure and, and regret. I, I mean, as a young kid, you don't get that. Yeah. I wish someone had laid that out for me because I took plenty of gut punches before I finally realized that no wasn't that bad. But I, th I think that would have been helpful. But the, the, the truth is, I don't know that I'd tell myself too much only because I, I'd be afraid to ruin it. I mean, it's sad to say, but in, in many ways, my life's been perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't want to change anything. I'd be scared to go back and, and do anything that could affect it. 
I am who I am because I, I, I figured these things out on the way. I hope that I can provide a shorter cut to some other people through my experience. They can learn from some of my mistakes, but I, I, I feel like if I had taught myself anything and changed the path, I might have screwed the whole thing that's up. A, that's a great message, really, because everybody's path is their own, and I guess the key is to go out and just do it, right? Give it a try. No, for me, it was definitely part of my success was the scars. And so, you know, and, and, and I was the kind of person to have to, I, I had to learn not to touch the stove by getting burned. <laughs> Couldn't just tell me. <laughs> yeah. So I think. That curiosity again. I, I, so I, do, I do think that this path probably suited me, but I'm hoping that today some people will be able to pull out some shortcuts and maybe get rid of some of the gut punches out right, of their life. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I loved the movie. I felt like I got to know you a little bit, mm-hmm. but I, you in person are much better than the movie. Oh, even. So it was, it was great to, to have you here and talk to you and so excited. And thank you for giving back to students and, and I know anybody that wants to learn more about you, there's, uh, they can see the movie, and, and you're also out there, I'm sure, on the internet in a number sure. of places they can read more about you. So we're just waiting for, you, you've written a book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, we're waiting for the next one, so. When I retire, I'm writing all the good business books. Perfect, perfect. Thank you, JP, <laughs> this was awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, I mean, it, was, it couldn't have been better. Great.